السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده ولا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله النبي المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد Welcome to another lesson with Quranic progression إن شاء الله تعالى today we're going to begin the tafsir of a new surah which is surah al-inshiqaq but before we begin uh, just to briefly recap what we did last week so last week was a special one of the QP specials that we do every so often and in particular uh, last week's special was more about concerning one of the one of the sciences of Quran and the science that we briefly touched upon and just uh, gave an introduction to was the science of Gharib al-Quran and Gharib al-Quran refers to the peculiar or the uncommon words that are found in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we gave a definition and there are many definitions uh, the scholars use to define the science of Gharib al-Quran uh, we said that linguistically the word Gharib is something which is uncommon or something which is unfamiliar and that's uh, the, the context in which it is also used in the Sunnah, in its linguistic in, in, in its linguistic form. In the hadith of the Prophet Islam began as something strange, it will return as something strange, and glad tidings are for the strangers. And we spoke a little bit about that in, in more detail in last week's lesson. But in as a science, technically, what the science of Gharib al-Qur'an is referring to is those words of the Qur'an that the people of, that the, the Arabs were unfamiliar with or it's not in common knowledge amongst people who speak Arabic what those words are referring to. And there are many, many examples of this in the Qur'an, many examples of this. And as we mentioned last week, uh, the number of words that are Gharib in the Qur'an and which words are classified within that science, are, are to be classified within that science or not, is something which will go down to the individual judgment of the scholar. So some scholars expanded and they did much more, other scholars did less, each one according to what they considered to be um, to be justifiable in terms of referring to that word as gharib. But we gave some examples last week. We said, for example, that the word uh, gharib al-Qur'an, uh, in gharib al-Qur'an, is like words that we find, for example, in Surah Al-Falaq, ghasiqin, uh, waqab, right? Some of those words, al-adiyati, dabha, fal-muriyati, qadha, one of these words, some of which we gave examples of last week, and there are a number of them that are found within the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these words are considered to be gharib al-Qur'an, words that are unfamiliar, words that are strange, words that are uncommon, that are used. And we said that just as you find them within the Qur'an, you also find them in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So there is a science that we call gharib al-hadith, the uncommon or strange words that are found within the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we gave the example last week of the hadith in which the Prophet sallallahu spoke about the signs of the hour and he spoke about Al-Haruj. And they asked him, what is Al-Haruj? He said it is Al-Qatl Al-Qatl. And when the Prophet sallallahu was speaking about how it was in the time the Muslims will be weak, but not because of a lack of number, but because of their, their state, the Prophet sallallahu used the word Al-Wahn. And they said, what does that mean, O Messenger of Allah? And he said, it is love of the dunya and a fear of death or a dislike of death. And so you have this in the Sunnah, where the Prophet is asked to explain what words mean. And that sometimes mean, uh, sometimes means the, the word in terms of what is it actually referring to, what is that word 
we're not familiar with that word and sometimes it can mean what is the context the correct context within the shari explanation because that is also something which can be used so we gave the example last week in quran like the word salah the word salah isn't a gharib word but to understand it in this linguistic context and then in the context of the shari definition the technical definition is something which some scholars use also in terms of uh, referring to this and you have likewise uh, in the sunnah and, and, and in other places as well so as we said some of the scholars did this so when it comes to the definition we said that the two main ways by which gharib al-Qur'an is defined or how we know that a word is gharib and, and what the meaning of that gharib is is number one through text so the Prophet spoke about it, he explained it or maybe Allah himself explains it in the Qur'an like in certain surahs al-qari'ah, al-qari'ah, al-haqah, al-haqah Allah poses the question subhanahu wa ta'ala and then he kind of explains what it's referring to um, so that's one example uh, or it may be the Prophet spoke about it in, in the sunnah he explained what it means or it may be, for example, the companions commentated on it, or the scholars that came after them from the tabi'een and from the scholars of the Arabic language and so on. And the second way that that's done is through the Arabic language. So the Arabs obviously have a word that is, uh, or meanings for the words that are used within that language. What is the correct context of understanding those words? And this is something which, as we know, the companions themselves did. They would refer sometimes to the Bedouin tribes or the Bedouin Arabs, in terms of defining certain things, and we give the example of uh, the narration of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma concerning the name of Allah Azza wa Jal al-Fatir, Fatir al-Samawati wal-Ard, what does the word Fatir mean? And the example that we spoke about uh, concerning Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, the verse in Surah Abasa, وَفَاكِهَةً وَأَبَّا, inshallah we'll, we'll come on to that inshallah ta'ala when we reach Surah Abasa. So all of these are examples of gharib. Uh, we also spoke then about some of the major works in Gharib al-Qur'an and we said that there are a number of them and they spanned uh, throughout the centuries many, throughout the generations of Islam, many, many books that have been written in Gharib al-Qur'an. And we said that it was one of the earliest sciences to actually be, to be written uh, in. Like it's one of the first sciences that scholars authored in. Uh, like al-Nasikh al-Mansukh also. And maybe that's another special that we will do at some time. These are early, very early, like from the time of the Tabi'een. So we have uh, books like the, by the likes of Ata, rahimahullah ta'ala, and some of the famous scholars of that generation of the Tabi'een who started to write concerning Gharib al-Qur'an. And that's because the early generations, their focus mainly was on the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of its preservation, in terms of its understanding and so on. And it was later on that they, that they started to compile, as we know, in the books of Hadith and so on. So the, this is an early thing. And, and then from then, from that time of the Tabi'een, the scholars continued to write an author pretty much in every century and every generation of Islam. And we have many, many famous books like the books of, uh, like the book of Ibn Qutayba that we spoke about uh, last week in the book of Al-Zajjaj, in the book of Al-Farra and others, Ma'amar uh, ibn Muthanna, Abu Ubaid and, and others uh, who spoke and wrote concerning, uh, concerning the topic of Gharib al-Quran. And then we mentioned some of the methodologies and we mentioned how this is done, and we gave some examples as well concerning Gharib al-Qur'an. So that was what we did last week in terms of the special that we did, and um, it's, I think it's something which is important for us, inshallah ta'ala, as we go through the Qur'an, to keep remembering those sciences, to incorporate them when we can, to be mindful of them. Uh, it's something which the student of tafsir needs, 
as they're studying the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So today, inshallah ta'ala, we're going on to the tafsir of a new surah, and that is Surah Al-Inshiqaq. And Surah Al-Inshiqaq is the 84th chapter of the Qur'an, the 84th chapter of the Qur'an. And Surah Al-Inshiqaq uh, has a number of names by which it is known. And as we usually do, we begin the, with an introduction into the surah before we begin its actual tafsir. And one of the first things that we speak about in the introduction is the names by which this surah is known in the books of tafsir, in the books of hadith and sunnah, uh, in other books of ulum al-Qur'an, the sciences of the Qur'an. And Surah Al-Inshiqaq is known by five names, or it has five names by which it can be referred to, or the, the, that you will find mentioned in books. Some more, some less famous. But either way, there are five that I came across. <clears throat> and as I mentioned before, one of the best sources for this is uh, to the book of Ibn Ashur, the tafsir of Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he often goes through this. And also um, some of the other books that also speak, like for example, sometimes Siyuti and Al-Itqan will speak about this. Some of the other scholars that wrote in Ulum Al-Quran, they also sometimes mention the different names by which it is known by. And it's also known by what we call At-Tatabu' or Al-Mutaba'a. And that is simply by, it just means reading throughout the books of Hadith and Quran and seeing what the scholars used in order to in order to, uh, to refer to different surahs, the names that they used to refer to those different surahs. So we have five names as we mentioned. The first of them is the name that we're all familiar with and the one that where we now know this surah by. And as we mentioned before that these names, these different names, you will find in the early books of Tafsir, especially uh, the early books of, of, of um, the early books of Sunnah and Hadith. But now obviously those names have kind of become stable or, or we've kind of settled on names by which these surahs are known. So no one really calls it now except by the names by which everyone kind of knows it and refers to. But even in the in, in the classical books, so for example, if you look at some of the books of fiqh, for those of you who are doing fiqh, and if you're doing, for example, Al-P, uh, with Sheikh Abu Isa, or any other book of fiqh that you may have studied, especially if that book of fiqh was written maybe 300 odd years ago. So it's not long, very long, concerning, like if you think about it respectively, uh, 1400 years of Islam. So even if the book was written maybe two, three hundred years ago, a text on fiqh, for example, you will often find that the scholars of fiqh sometimes refer to surahs using the names that we will mention. Like they don't say, for example, Surah Al-A'la. Like for example, when speaking about the Jum'ah prayer, the scholar of fiqh will say in their text that the Prophet used to recite it is from what is well known is that he would recite in the Salatul Jum'ah, Surah Al-A'la and Surah Al-Ghashiyah. But often what they will say is that he recites in the first in the first raka'ah, Sabbihisma Rabbik. And in the second one, Hal Ataka Hadithul Ghashiya. Or he may say, for example, in the Fajr of that day, the Friday, the Sunnah was that the Prophet would recite in the first raka'ah, Alif Lamim as Sajda. And in the second one, Hal Ata'al Insan. And so they will often use not the names by which we now know them but the classical names by which these surahs were known that you will find in the books of surah, uh, Sirah and Hadith. And I think it's only more recently than that then, especially once uh, printing became very easy for people and, and books and it became very widespread and so on. And the Qur'ans also kind of like just settled in terms of the way that they were printed, very professionally done, uh, very, very academically researched in terms of the script and everything, making sure that everything is correct as it should be. That Then the names were affixed to those to those surahs and that's what we kind of now all know and accept them as even though you will find still in certain uh, musahif 
you will find slight differences. And a famous example of that will be Surah Al-Isra. Surah Al-Isra you will often find. Surah Al-Isra and you will often find Surah Bani Israel. That's still something which until recently, I don't know if it's still the case, but until recently, maybe in the last 20 years, 30 years, you will find Musahif that still have the differing in name. And another example would be Surah Tawbah. Surah Tawbah and Surah Bara'a. That's something which you'd also find in certain Musahif. And I think that probably depends on Allah knows best concerning geographical location. So in certain parts of the world, it just seems that Bani Israel was the name that they're more familiar with as opposed to Surah Al-Isra, and that's what they used. But for the most part now, it is pretty much all settled upon. So the first name by which the surah is known is the, the famous uh, name of the surah that we still know the, the surah by, and that is Suratul Inshiqaq. And this is mentioned by uh, by a number of the scholars, including Al-Akhfash, who was from the scholars of the Arabic language, Ibn Qutayba, who we mentioned last week in his book on Quran and Gharib al-Quran, Al-Imam al-Nasai in his Sunan, Ibn Abi Hatim in his Tafsir, Al-Dani, Abu Amr al-Dani, the famous scholar of Qiraat and, and, and Sciences of the Quran, Al-Baghawi in his Tafsir Ibn Atiyah and Ibn Kathir, alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. So all of them refer to the Surah, Surah Al-Nishraq, and, and there are many others besides as well. As always, these lists are not usually exhaustive, but just a selection of the names because there would be too many for me to mention them. Uh, and that's why uh, Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, and he said that the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir and the, 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 the scribes of the musahif, because in the olden days, the mushaf was written by hand, as we know. So those people would be known as scribes. They would write the mushaf by down. And that's something, by the way, which existed from the time of the companions. So if you read the, the old books in Quran, in, in the compilation of the Quran and so on, at the book of Abu Ubaid, in Fadail Quran, in the book of Ibn Abi Dawood, and Musahif, these like very, very early books that dealt with the compilation of the Quran and the different sciences of the Quran and the Quran and its recitation and its qiraat and all of those books that we have, by the way, each one of them with a standard, with a chain of narration that goes back to the tabi'een or the companions or to the Prophet And this is something which uh, in our time, unfortunately, people have just, they just lost throughout all of the sciences of Islam. That we have a standard, we have chains that take us back in every single science. Most people think that chains of narration only exist when it comes to hadith and the books of hadith. No, that's not the case. We have asanid, we have chains of narration in tafsir. As we've mentioned before, if you look at Tabari, look at Abdul Razak, look at Ibn Abi Hatim, all you will find, Ibn Mundir, all you will find is haddathana and akhbarana. He said, he informed us, he narrated us, all the way back to those scholars of and imams of tafsir that preceded the authors of those books. You have the same thing in Sirah. You have the same thing in Aqidah. You have the same thing in, as we mentioned before, when it comes to the Qur'an, generally. So when it comes to the compilation of the Qur'an, when it comes to the Qira'at of the Qur'an, when it comes to the Rasm of the Qur'an, the script of the Qur'an, when it comes to when to stop and where to start, that, that science I think that we covered also, the science of when to pause in the Qur'an and how to restart, the science of Adadul Ay that we spoke about briefly, which is the counting and the numbering of the verses, all of these sciences. All of them have books that you will find hadathan and akhbarana. And that's something which we should know because as Muslims sometimes, or uh, even as students of knowledge, sometimes we think that they, these are things that people made up later on, that scholars came and they made it up and they said this and they said that, and that's something which they just did of their own ijtihad. No, that's not the case. Our scholars and our imams, the imams of, of, of every science in Islam from the Salaf, they were imams of narration. 
Because our religion is based on narration. Our religion is based on Isnad. Our religion is based on who you took your religion from, from those who came before you, and who they took it from all the way back to the generation of the companions and to the Prophet wasallam. That's our religion. And that's when that's why if you, for example, don't know or are unsure, or someone comes with a new thing that sounds peculiar to you, sounds strange to you, not something which you've come across before, then all you need to do is find someone who knows those books in that science that tell you hadathan and akhbaran. And they will tell you actually that this is what the aqeed of the salaf was. This is what their understanding was when it came to the compilation of the Quran. This is what their understanding was when it came to, for example, the ahruf of the Quran or the qiraat of the Quran and how it works because we have all of those in narrations and <clears throat> unfortunately you know none of those books at least to the best of my knowledge have been translated but if someone was to take one of those books like the book of Abu Ubaid Al-Qasim ibn Salam who was from the contemporaries of Imam Ahmad rahimahumullah ta'ala ajma'in and he was to translate his book on Fada'il Quran it's an amazing book full of hundreds of narrations on many different uh, sciences and many different chapters all to do with the Quran and the fada'il, which means virtues of the Qur'an, is only one small element of the book. Yes, he mentions about what's the virtue of this surah and that surah, but that is only one short chapter of the whole book. But the, the Salaf, they used to call the, their books fada'il, virtues of the Qur'an, not meaning the rewards of reciting this or that, but virtues, because all of the Qur'an is virtuous. So they mean by it everything that is to do with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like the book of Ibn Abi Dawood, the son of Imam Abu Dawood, the author of the Sunan, or the compiler of the Sunan, his famous son Ibn Abi Dawood, famous scholar of Aqeed and Hadith and so on, he has a book called Al-Masahif, the Mus'haf, or the plural of the Mus'haf. The Masahif is a book in which he also spoke about this, the compilation of the Qur'an, and the Qira'at, and the Ahruf, and all of those things that a student would need to know about. And so that's the same thing that we have. So even when it comes to any of these sciences, it is something which you can trace back in terms of a chain of narration. And that is something which, which I think it is important for us to know and remember. It's one of the main reasons why we started in my local masjid, the program called Al-Isnad, which maybe some of you have attended before, you know about, you've heard. It's because all of those books that we do, there's a chain of narration back to them. And many of those books also within them were books of narrations in Aqidah, for example, in Hadith, and in other sciences as well. And that's the beauty of our religion. That if you come across something that doesn't make sense to you, someone says this is what you should believe, this is what your creed should be, this is what your aqidah should be concerning Allah or someone else, you don't need to take it from me or them or anyone else. You have a book by Al-Bukhari, by Sufyan al-Thawri, by Imam Malik, by all of those great Imams of Islam in which they will say that this is what we found our Imams and scholars upon. And the scholars who narrated from them will give you their isnad, their chain, Back to those great Imams of Islam, like Al-Bukhari. Al-Bukhari in his Aqeedah, he said, his, his, his Aqeedah, he said that I met a thousand scholars across the Muslim lands, and he names so many of them, Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, Sham, Baghdad, names them as many as he can. And then he gives examples of the scholars he met in each one, and he names, I think, well over a hundred, but he says that I met a thousand, and were it not that this book would become too long, I would mention each one of them by name. He said that I met them all, all of them agreed that this is the aqidah of the people of Islam. This is what the Muslims should be upon. This is what the companions were upon. This is what the Prophet ﷺ left them with. And then he mentions the aqidah of, 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 of Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah. And so that's something which is extremely important for a student to know. Because it gives you confidence, it gives you assurance, it gives you 
that, that yaqeen, that certainty, that by Allah's permission, you're not just worshipping Allah based on anyone's saying or anyone's desires or any say-so of any, even if they are a scholar, even if they are an imam. You take your religion from the Qur'an, from the sunnah, from the companions, and from those scholars who took from those sources through the chains by which we still have in existence today. So that's something which is extremely important. And likewise, the same thing is for the Qur'an. So when it comes to, for example, when I say in the tafsir, Mujahid said, Qatada said, so-and-so said, whoever it may be, you can go back to At-Tabari, or Abdul Razak, or even Abi Hatim, or any of those famous Imams of Islam, and they will give to you their chain that takes you back from Tabari to those people. And At-Tabari obviously wrote his book, and we have a chain that takes us back to At-Tabari as well, by the way. But that's a... You know, that's like a different issue. So the point is here that then the tafsir that you have, you know, this is the tafsir of the Salaf. This is how the companions understood the Qur'an, how the tabi'een understood the Qur'an, how the famous imams of Islam understood the Qur'an. And so therefore, this is something which is uh, which we also have in tafsir. And all of the sciences related to the Book of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the scholars that did this particularly when it comes to the recitation of the Qur'an, or what we called, as we, when we did that special uh, last year, uh, that we call the ulumul qira'ah, the sciences regarding recitation. So it's like the science of tajweed and the science of qira'at and the science of of adul ay, numbering of verses and al waqf al ibtida and al rasm and al dabt, the, the script of the Quran and so on. Even those, Abu Bakr, uh, Abu Amr al Dani, rahimahullah taala, has a book in which he mentions his chains back to those imams of how they would count verses, how they would uh, how they would start and stop on verses, how they would recite verses. All of this you will find within the books of the Imams of Islam. So the first name by which this surah is known, therefore, is Suratul Inshiqaq. The second name by which this surah is known is the first verse. And as we said, this is something which is very common. So it is known as Surah Ida Sama'un Shaqat. And this is something which you will find in many of the early works. So Al Farra, this is what he calls it, Ibn Wahab. This is what he calls it, Mu'ammar ibn, uh, ibn Muthanna, also from the Imams of Ghalib al-Qur'an. This is what he calls it, Abdullah ibn Mubarak. This is how he refers to it, and Imam al-Bukhari, and al-Tirmidhi, and, uh, and al-Tabari, rahimahumullahu ta'ala. All of them refer to it as, Surah Ida Sama' Unshaqqat. And that's because it is very common, as we know, uh, that they would refer to the surah by its complete first verse. And... Uh, Perhaps one of the reasons why they did this is because this is what it's known by or what it was referred to in a number of narrations that we find in the Sunnah that the companions when speaking about this Surah refer to it by its opening verse. And that's also something, as we said, very common. So in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his Muwatta, he has a narration of Abu Salama. Abu Salama is one of the scholars of the Tabi'een, one of the prolific narrators of hadith of his generation. And Abu Salama is the son of the companion Abdurrahman ibn Awf. And Abu Salama studied with a number of the companions from them, Ibn Abbas. But from them, and the one that he narrates many, many ahadith from, is none other than Abu Hurairah. So Abu Salama narrates in the Muwatta of Imam Malik that Abu Hurairah once recited to them in Salah, or maybe outside Salah, Allah knows best, the narration doesn't say, he recited to them, That's what he says. And then he made the prostration of sujood that you find therein. Saraf and when he finished the salah, so it seems like it was in salah, he then told them that the Prophet also recited this surah and he prostrated 
at the same place. And that's as we said uh, in the Muwatta of Imam Malik. And that's why it seems that Al-Bukhari and Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Tabari and all of those, Ibn Mubarak, that are Imams of Hadith and narrations and so on, that they refer to this Surah, uh, they, they refer to this Surah by the name of Ida Sama'un Shaqat because of that particular narration. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. The third name by which this Surah is known is Surah in Shaqat. So just the last word of the first verse. And that's something which is used by Ibn Hajar in his Fathul Bari. So Al-Fathul Bari, as we know, is the amazing work of Al-Hafidh Ibn Hajar in which he explained, did an explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari. And often because Imam al-Bukhari in, in his Sahih has a whole book of Tafsir, Kitab al-Tafsir, in which he speaks about the Tafsir of the Qur'an. And often within that he quotes from Mujahid. And often the tafsir of Mujahid is what you will find in Sahih al-Bukhari. But often, uh, often the, the tafsir of Mujahid that is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, because it's not a hadith of the Prophet wasallam, nor is it even a statement of the companion. It's from the tabi'een as Mujahid. So often he just mentions this is the statement of Mujahid, without giving a chain of narration and so on. And these are like the mu'allaqat, the suspended narrations that you find in Sahih al-Bukhari. But Ibn Hajar, often in his Fath, in his book Fathul Bari, his explanation, what he will do is he will give the chain back to Mujahid because those chains are there. It's just that Imam Bukhari didn't put the chain in. Number one, because it's not a companion or a prophet or the Prophet speaking. Number two, because it doesn't reach his level of authenticity. Because as we know, Imam Bukhari had a very stringent level of authenticity in terms of the narrations that he mentioned. But because it's tafsir, and this shows to you something which we which we spoke about previously, but for those of you that may have attended my Isnad course on the introduction to the principles of tafsir, the book by Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, we mentioned then that the scholars of the Salaf, when it came to tafsir, were less stringent in terms of the Isnad that they applied. Less stringent in terms of the Isnad, the chain, or the, the condition of the chain of narrators, they were less stringent in it than when it comes to the hadith of the Prophet and so he often mentions the statements of Mujahid. Imam Ibn Hajar, or Hafiz Ibn Hajar, then comes in his book and he will often mention the full chain. Who narrated this from Mujahid so that you can see the path to Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. Um, and so this is the name by which it is known by in Surah, this, uh, surah the third name it is, it is known by is Surah in Shaqat. So Ibn Hajar mentions this and a scholar by the name of As-Sakhawi. Both of them mention Surah in Shaqat, and this is abbreviation. Just as Ida Sama in Shaqat is more a description as opposed to a name because it's just the first verse, then in Shaqat is an abbreviation of that. It is an abbreviation of that. The fourth name by which it is also referred to is Surah to Shafaq. Surah to Shafaq. And one of the verses in the surahs we will come on to, inshallah ta'ala, at the appropriate time is the verse, Fala uqsimu bishafaq. So Allah Azza wa Jal refers to and takes an oath by the Shafaq. And so Ibn Hajar ta'ala, also mentions this as being one of the names of this surah, Surah Al-Shafaq. So obviously the first three names refer to the first verse, in Shiqaq, Ida Sama'un Shaqqat, and in Shaqqat. Or refer to verse number one, Surah Al-Shafaq is referring to the verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this surah, فَلَا أُقْسِمُ فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِالشَّفَقْ and that is verse number 16. Verse number 16, and the shafaq refers to the glow of the sun or the twilight that you see 
that's what's referred to as Shafaq, but inshallah we'll come to that. And the fifth name then <coughs> by which this surah is known is Surah Kadh. Surah Kadh. So Allah Azza wa Jal in verse number six, He says, Ya Yuhal Insanu innaka kadihun ila rabbika kadhan famulaqi. And kadih or kadh refers to toiling, laboring, exerting all of your energy towards something, working consistently hard towards a goal. That is the word kadh in the Arabic language. And so it is mentioned, as, as Ibn Ashur says, it is also mentioned as one of the names of this surah. After that verse, Surah Al-Kadh. And the only person that seems to have mentioned this is Al-Ja'bari. And Al-Ja'bari is a scholar of Qur'an. Uh, he has a book in which he, in which he uh, spoke about waqf and ibtida and he spoke about like certain things, uh, certain things when it comes to, uh, when it comes to uh, sciences of the Qur'an. And he also has like a poem in which he spoke about the Makki and Madani surahs, which surahs are Makki, which surahs are Madani and so on. So this is something which, which he mentions uh, in, his, in his particular work. And he is the only one, Ibn Ashur says, that I came across that mentioned it by this name. Surah Al-Qadh al-Ja'bari mentioned it by this name. And perhaps it is, and Allah Azza wa knows best, because, of, because it's a poem. And as we mentioned before that in poetry, so for those of you that attended the Snath course that we did on the poem of Zimzami, or even if you attended it, the one that we did online for QP students a few years back now, uh, we did the poem of Zimzami, which is on the sciences of the Quran. And Zimzami often, because it's poetry, has to use certain words or describe it in a certain way that isn't the most clear or the most explicit or the most uh, re- you know, understandable but he does it because of the need the poetic necessity of having to use it in that way in order to keep the poetic scale going so likewise uh, it seems and Allah knows best Al-Ja'bari had to do something similar when it came to certain names so that it could fit within that particular uh, fit within uh, that particular poet, poetic structure that he was using and Allah knows best. But either way, it is mentioned as one of the names. And so therefore, in conclusion, we have five names by which this surah is known. Surah Al-Inshiqaq, Surah Ida Sama'un Shaqat, Surah Inshaqat, Surah Shafaq, and Surah Kadh. These five names by which it is known. <coughs> the second issue in this introduction, the second point in this introduction that we want to go through is to speak about his revelation in terms of whether this surah is a Makki or Madani surah, Makki meaning revealed before Hijrah, Madin referring to revelation post-Hijrah. And this surah is one of those surahs that by ijma', by consensus, it is considered to be a Makki surah, so revealed before the Hijrah of the Prophet وسلم, to Medina. So by ijma', by consensus. And from those scholars who mentioned that there is consensus upon this, uh, because as we said before, when it comes to um, mentioning a surah, whether it's Makki or Madani, the scholars have two or three ways of doing this. Number one, they mention the consensus or the agreement of the scholars of Tafsir or the scholars of Islam. Number two, they don't mention consensus, but they just simply state it's Makki or it's Madani. And number three, they mention the difference therein. Or they may say it is a Makki surah, but some said waqila, or it is said also that it is Madani, or vice versa, whatever it may be. So those are the three main ways that you will find. Number one, consensus is mentioned. Number two, no consensus is mentioned, but there is consensus, but that scholar doesn't necessarily say it. And number three, 
they will mention the difference of opinion sometimes just in passing. So they will say, for example, it's a Mecca Surah, but some said it is Madani. And sometimes, no, in more detail, because that difference of opinion is actually quite deep. And, it's, and there's many scholars that had that difference of opinion. And so it's a Surah in which there is a big difference of opinion concerning whether it is Mecca or Madani. So this surah, as we said, by ijma' by agreement, by consensus of the scholars of tafsir, it is a Mecca surah. And from those who said that, that it is by consensus and by agreement, is Ibn Atiyah. Ibn Atiyah said in his tafsir, وَهِيَ مَكِّيَّةٌ بِلَا خِلَافٍ بَيْنَ الْمُتَأْوِرِينَ It is a Mecca surah without any difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. And likewise, Ibn Jawzi said something similar, هِيَ مَكِّيَّةٌ بِإِجْمَاعِهِمْ It is Mecca by ijma' by consensus. And as Shawkani said something similar, Makiyatun bila khilaf, it is Makki without a difference without there being any difference in this. And likewise Al Qurtubi said something similar, Suratun in Shikak, Makiyatun fi qawli Jami' it is a Makki Surah in the position of all of them. Meaning by agreement. And from those who said that it is a Makki Surah without necessarily mentioning the agreement or consensus of the scholars of Tafsir is Abu Amr al Dani and Ibn Kathir and Al Suyuti Alihim Rahmatullahi Jami'an, all of these scholars and many more besides. And as we said this is a surah in which there is no difference of opinion. So the odds are that whichever book of tafsir you will pick up, it will tell you that this surah is a Mecca surah. I wasn't aware of, didn't come across any difference of position in this being a Mecca surah. The third thing that we want to mention in this introduction is how this surah is mentioned in the sunnah or in narrations. How this surah is mentioned in the sunnah or in certain narrations. So we um, already mentioned the narration of Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, which is in, uh, collected by Nasa'i in his Sunan al-Kubra. So the Sunan al-Nasa'i, as we said before, is the Sunan al-Mujtaba or the Sunan al-Sughra, which is the famous Sunan that we know that there is the collection of the six. And then he has the Sunan al-Kubra, the bigger Sunan, from which the smaller sunan was extracted. He chose a hadith from the bigger sunan. And the bigger sunan, both of them are available. So this hadith, he mentions uh, al-Nasai, just to show to you that it's by Isnad. Uh, I'll mention these narrations just to, just. I don't normally do this, but just to stress that position or just that point that we were making earlier, that everything that we have in our religion is by sanad, it is by chain of narration. So al-Nasai says that Qutayba ibn Sa'id, he narrates from قتيبة بن سعيد قال أخبرنا قتيبة بن سعيد عن مالك عن عبد الله بن يزيد أن أبي سلمة بن عبد الرحمن أن أبا هريرة قرأ بهم إذا السماء انشقت فسجد فيها فلما انصرف أخبرهم أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم سجد فيها ينويس من قتيبة بن سعيد فإمام مالك فمع عبد الله بن يزيد فمع أبو سلمة ابن عبد الرحمن بن عوف فمع أبو هريرة that he recited to them إذا السماء انشقت and prostrated in it and when he finished the salah he told them that the Prophet ﷺ likewise prostrated in it. And it is one of the surahs in which, as we know, there is a sajda. And it is one of the surahs in which there is a difference of opinion, by the way, as we will see, inshallah ta'ala, when we come on to that verse, there's a difference of opinion concerning its sajda and whether the sajda should be made. So we know that there are a number of sajdas in the Qur'an, 15 in total. But not all of the imams of Islam agreed on all 15. There's a difference of opinion concerning them. So like for example, in the madhab of the Hanabila, the Hanbali madhab, the one that we study and teach, or at least I teach anyway in my masjid and in the Isnad program, there's 14 sajdas in the Hanbali madhab. 
they don't consider it to be, they don't consider the sajda in Surah Sad to be a sajda. So there's 14, others are 12, others are 13. So each madhab has its own position. There are 15 in, in total, and all of them, all 15, have been affirmed in the Qur'ans that you have. So the Mus'haf that you open, all 15 are mentioned. But some of them, there is a difference of opinion. From those in which there is a difference of opinion is the one in Surah Al-Nishiqaq, as we will see, inshallah ta'ala, when we come to that particular verse. So that's one hadith in which it is it is mentioned, and it is referred to, as you can see, as either Sama'un Shaqqat. And as you will see from all of these uh, narrations, all of them refer to them as being, or as uh, refer to the Surah as either Sama'un Shaqqat. Abdullah ibn Wahab, rahimahullah ta'ala, he narrates a narration from Al-Harith an Ayyub, from Ayyub, from Ibn Sirin, also from the students of Abu Huraira, from Abu Huraira radiallahu an, that a man recited, إِذَا السَّمَاءُ شَقَّتْ and اِقْرَأْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Surah Al-Alaq, again, it's mentioned by the first, uh, the first, uh, the first verse. Uh, he mentioned, he, he recited both of these surahs, إِذَا السَّمَاءُ شَقَّتْ and اِقْرَأْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Two men recited these two verses. One of them made the sajdas therein, and the other one didn't make the sajdas therein. So he said, Abu Hurairah concerning the man who made both sajdas, that he is better than the one who didn't make two sajdas. Uh, and Ibn Sirin said that I don't know that these two men that he's referring to, meaning Abu Hurairah, is other one anyone other than Umar and the Prophet sallallahu So Buhari radiallahu is saying that I prayed behind the Prophet and he recited Surah Al-Inshiqaq and Surah Al-Alaq and he made sajdas therein. And I prayed behind Umar and he recited these surahs and he didn't make sajdas therein. And that's why he said the one who made sajdas is better than the one who didn't, meaning the Prophet sallallahu is obviously better than Umar, higher in status, virtue and so on. Um, and, and that's another narration that you will, you will find. And by the way, Umar an left the sajda of certain surahs, as he is mentioned in some narrations, to show people that they're not wajib, to show people that it's not an obligation. And that's why it's reported from in the, sometimes in the Jumu'ah, because Jumu'ah salah is when everyone gathers and everyone's there. That sometimes he would recite and he would make sajda, and sometimes he would recite and he wouldn't make sajda. And it's reported that he did something similar on the Friday morning, Fajr prayer in Surah As-Sajda, because it's from the surahs, that it's from the Sunnah to recite on Surah on, on the Friday morning, uh, Surah Alif Lamim, Sajda. And so he, one week, made the Sajda, the next week he didn't make the Sajda. And when they asked him, he said, I want to teach the people that it's not something which is wajib, it's not something which is obligatory. And therefore, if they leave it sometimes, then it's okay, and it's permissible for them to do so. But obviously, it is better for a person to make the Sajdas uh, when and if they can. And Abdullah ibn Wahab mentioned something uh, similar, another narration also from Abu Hurair radiallahu an, but this time he mentions only in the Sama'un Shaqqat. In the Sama'un Shaqqat, he doesn't mention Surah, Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. And Abdullah ibn Wahab also mentions another narration, this time from Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Uh, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous Imam of Islam, the famous Khalifa of the Muslims, the famous scholar of his own in his own might, that Ibn 
Abd Umar ibn Abd al-Aziz used to make the sajda in Surah Al-Najm. And the sama'u shaqqat and iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. In all of these surahs, he would make the sajda. And he also mentions another narration, of uh, fifth narration, I believe now, of Ibn Wahab, or maybe a fourth narration of Ibn Wahab, in which he mentions from, uh, from Khayr ibn Nu'im al-Hadrami, Khayr ibn Nu'im al-Hadrami, uh, and this is a narration from Al-Layth ibn Sa'd, and Al-Layth ibn Sa'd, rahimahullah ta'ala, is from the famous imams of Egypt, from the imams of the Sunnah and Hadith in Egypt, from the contemporaries of Imam Malik, a great imam, an illustrious imam. In his books you will find, his ahadith and narrations you will find throughout the books of the Sunnah. An imam from the imams of Islam. And Al-Layth was known for his knowledge and his wisdom and so on. And in fact, it's said that Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, changed many of his positions as we know, when he went and finally settled in Egypt, because that's where he would spend the latter part of his life. The early part of his life, when he formulated his madhab first, was spent in Baghdad, in Iraq. And then he later on migrated to Egypt, and that's where he settled, and that's where he would pass away, rahimahullah ta'ala. And it's said that there, he changed many of his positions, and that's why in the Shafi'i madhab, for those of you that study Shafi'i fiqh, or you, you come across Shafi'i fiqh, you have, or they have what they call, the Madhab al-Qadim and the Madhab al-Jadid. The old Madhab and the new Madhab. The old Madhab means the original Madhab or the first Madhab, the first positions of Imam al-Shafi'i when he was in Baghdad. And the new Madhab refers to his later positions when he came and settled in Egypt. From the main Imams and teachers and scholars that he studied with in Egypt was none other than this Imam, Al-Layth ibn Sa'd, rahimahullah ta'ala. And he took from his knowledge and he benefited from him to the extent that he even said concerning him when comparing him to his early teacher, Al-Imam Malik ibn Anas in Medina, he said that Al-Layth was more knowledgeable than Malik, but his students didn't do a good job with him, meaning his students didn't preserve his knowledge, spread his knowledge in the way that Imam Malik's students did. Because Imam Malik's students, they took his muwatta, they memorized it, they studied it, they learned it from him, and they spread it across the world, from all over the world. And that's why today you still have Muslims that are on the Maliki madhab throughout Africa. Go to Morocco, go to many of those countries in northern Africa and even within Africa itself and you will find that they're Maliki Madhab, Mauritania, a number of these countries. And so they did a good job spreading his, his knowledge. And from his students also was Imam Shafi'i himself, from his students also was the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, to the extent that Muhammad ibn Hassan is one of the narrators of the Muatta. So the Muatta came to us or has come to us through a number of the students of Imam Malik. We call them the Riwayat, the different narrations of the Muatta. From the narrations of Muwatta is the narration of Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, who was the premier or one of the major students of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahumullah ta'ala, jami'an. And so Imam Malik, his students spread his knowledge. And because they spread his knowledge, there's something which benefited people, something which they learned from, something which they, which they took a great deal from. Imam al-Shafi'i also studied with Al-Layth ibn Sa'd. He said Al-Layth, his students didn't do the same. And that, by the way, goes not only for Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, but for many of the great Imams of Islam. And that's not to belittle their students or to say that they neglect, because many of those Imams, their students were Imams. Imam al-Shafi'i is one of the students of Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. These Imams had as their students Imams. But Allah Azza wa chose for some of them, decreed for his knowledge, and by his knowledge and wisdom, subhanahu wa ta'ala, decreed for some of them that the knowledge would persevere, would continue, would, would be preserved, would, would, would stay for many generations to come and for others that their knowledge would dissipate.
because at the time of Alith ibn Sa'd, as long as the students were alive, they had the fiqh of Alith ibn Sa'd, and they used to follow the madhab of Alith ibn Sa'd, just as you had the madhab of Sufyan al-Thawri, and Sufyan ibn Uyayna, and Abdullah ibn Mubarak, and even al-Tabari, right, tabari al-Jariri, they used to call them, the people that followed the, the, the madhab of Imam al-Tabari, because he was an imam of fiqh as well, al-Imam al-Tabari. They used to call them the Jariris, because his name is Ibn al-Jarir al-Tabari. And that's why in the early books of Hadith, you have a narrator by the name of Al-Jurayri. Al-Jurayri is a place, it's a tribe. And so that's per, uh, said by the Dhamma. Al-Jariri, because many people mispronounce that name, and the followers of Imam al-Tabari. And you don't find his followers in the early books of Hadith because he was born after. He came after the time of the likes of Imam Ahmad and Bukhari. Now this Imam al-Tabari came after them, rahimahumullah ta'ala ajma'in. So the point of this being, uh, that they had students in that regard, they had a number of students in that regard, and those students used to preserve their knowledge and so on, but they weren't able to preserve them as a complete madhab, the way that the four madhabs have come to us. So al Zai had a madhab, Az-Zuhri had a madhab, Ibn Sirin had a madhab, all of these great imams had a madhab, by which it was known and studied and learnt and so on and so forth. However, over time, that knowledge didn't come to us that that structure of a madhab in the way that it's, it's, it's a curriculum is placed there in the mutun are written, texts are written, books are written, explanations are written and so on, that wasn't done for all of those other madhahib. And so over time, even though many of those, their positions are still preserved, we still know many of the positions of Al-Layth, many of the positions of Sufyan al-Thawri, of Ata, of Mujahid, of Sa'id al-Musayyib, of Masruq, many of the great imams, their positions have been recorded in the books through Senate, as we said before. But as a fully formulated, fully fledged madhab, that's not something which survived. And so that's something which you will find. And it's, by the way, the same in the qira'at. Many qira'at, as we said, many qira'at existed from the companions and from those who came after them. But Allah Azza wa chose that they wouldn't survive. They wouldn't become mutawatir. They wouldn't be relayed every single generation by, by tawatun. The ones that were... They're the ones that are named after the ones, after the famous ten imams that we have, Nafi' Ali bin Kathir and, and Asim and, and, and the others. So that's something which, which, which happens over time. And so Allah decreed that some of these imams, their knowledge wouldn't survive and from them was Al-Layth ibn Sa'd. So we have much of his knowledge in terms of his narrations and his positions, but in terms of a fully-fledged madhab, even though Imam Shafi's position was that he was on par with Imam Malik, which shows his level of knowledge that he was like Imam Malik in his understanding of the Sunnah and Fiqh, and as we said, he's a prolific narrator of Hadith, known for his trustworthiness, known for his precision in narration and so on. So in this particular narration, he also mentions that they that one of the people that he came across, a scholar by the name of Khair ibn Nu'im al-Hadrami, he used to recite in Ramadan, lead them in Ramadan, in Taraweeh, in Qiyam. And if he recited either Sama'un Shaqat, then he would make the Sajda therein also. And maybe some of these narrations, inshallah, will come on to again when we come to that verse in the surah that speaks about the sajda. But I just wanted to show you that this is the name that you will find, generally speaking, within the texts themselves. So the texts, whether in, in the books of tafsir or in the books of sunnah or in the books of ulum al-Quran, the early texts, the often the way that the surah is referred to is by the first verse, إِذَا السَّمَاءُ unshaqat, إِذَا السَّمَاءُ unshaqat. And this surah consists of 25 verses it consists of 25 verses so i think with that inshallah ta'ala we will come to an end in today's episode um, rather than start with the tafsir of the first verse of surah al-shiqaq but if anyone has any questions you can ask them 
Otherwise, we'll conclude for today. Okay. If there's no um, questions, then inshallah ta'ala, we will conclude here. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.